Well, it is Father's Day, and more importantly, it is the Lord's Day. It is the day that Jesus rose from the dead, and that's more important than anything. It is good at times to address fathers, to address men, to talk about biblical masculinity, to give exhortation and rebuke that's pointed toward those men. And yet the most important thing in all the world is that we know this Jesus, that we get what he's about, that we love him even though we don't see him, and we believe in him for salvation. And so today we're in Mark 14, verse 26 to 52, as we come to that Thursday before the Friday crucifixion, before the resurrection Sunday. One-third of Mark is devoted to the last week of Jesus' life, his Passion Week, it's sometimes called. Some have said that Mark is simply a passion narrative with a long introduction. It could be true of any of the gospel accounts in a sense. They're all rolling downhill toward the cross in resurrection. There are signs right from the beginning. The writings on the wall right from the beginning. The foreshadows are everywhere. In Mark, eventually you get explicit predictions from Jesus about his coming death and resurrection. His vivid explanation about this being the reason he came and what he's about to do and what he's here for. Mark tells the story using the word immediately often. In Mark, everything it seems happens immediately. It's picking up speed. It's moving quickly and quickly toward the cross in resurrection. And here we come to what is most important then. It should remind us when the Gospels devote this much time to the last week of Jesus' life, and when the writing is on the wall from the very beginning that this is about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, then this is what is most important. What Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, the Gospel is of most importance or first importance. This is the crux of Christianity. This is the crux of Jesus' coming In our passage today, we have four different scenes or four different movements, and each has a contrast within it. The first two will take the majority of our time, and then the third and fourth will go quickly. Why? Uh, Well, because that's how I roll. That's usually how I do it. I don't know. It's... Really, there's no better explanation for it than that, I suppose. Here's the first one. We have predictions in protest. Predictions in protest in verse 26 to 31. Both of those Ps are familiar themes in Mark. We've seen Jesus make predictions, and we've seen the disciples protest Jesus' understanding of the future and insert their own interpretation of the future and what's to come. Here, Jesus predicts in verse 27, you will all fall away. And then he quotes from Zechariah 13, 7. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Remember, when the Bible quotes the Bible, often it expects that we'll go to that spot in the Bible, usually in the Old Testament, and we'll go back there and we will rummage around a little bit. So in Zechariah 13, that begins by predicting a coming day of a cleansing from sin. Verse 1. And in that coming day, there will also be a refining of God's people, a sifting of sorts, a a, a parting of the ways. 
And it's in that context that God speaks of his shepherd. It's a good shepherd. He says, it's the one who stands next to me. And it's that shepherd who will be struck. And curiously, it is God who will strike that shepherd. God strikes the shepherd. God calls on a sword as though it were a real person. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. God will strike the shepherd? God will strike his shepherd, a good shepherd? Well, we see something similar in another Old Testament passage, one you might be more familiar with. Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. Surely he, Isaiah writes, has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. It goes on to say, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. Well, that's what Zechariah 13 is talking about. God striking his shepherd for the covenant mercies to come. Now, Jesus quoting Zechariah 13 like he does here in Mark 14 should remind us that as we inch closer to the completion of this Passion Week, with all the betrayal and treachery and denials and false testimonies and political gamesmanship and what looks like chaos and culminating in that violent crucifixion, all of that is anything but out of control. It is not out of control. It is firmly in the sovereign's hand. If the striking of the shepherd is God's doing, then the leading up to it is as well. It's the will of the Lord. He's making an offering for guilt. We saw that same thing last week in those classic passages of Acts 2 and Acts 4, which talk about the cross being God's plan all along. Yes, you crucified him, but this was the foreordained plan of God. Zechariah 13 even ends on a hopeful note. It ends with salvation. It doesn't end with a stricken shepherd who's sad and defeated, and that's it. But it ends like this. They will call upon my name, and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. So you get the whole picture there. You get the striking of the shepherd you get the salvation of his people. But in the middle there, you also have the scattering of the sheep. Zechariah 13 tells that the striking of the shepherd will mean the scattering of the sheep. And Jesus applies this to his disciples in that Passion Week. And that's really what our, our whole passage is about this morning. The scattering of the sheep. The shepherd is struck and the sheep begin to be scattered. That's Jesus' prediction, but then there's protest, and no surprise, it starts with Peter, the most vocal of the apostles. Verse 29, Peter said to him, even though they all will fall away, I will not. Back in chapter 8, when Jesus first predicted his coming death and resurrection, it says, Peter pulled him aside and began to rebuke him. Peter does it again here. He corrects Jesus. Jesus said, all will fall away. And Peter says, uh, 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 
not all, I won't. And he does it with staggering self-promotion, not just self-confidence. He does it with rivalry and condescension because he not only props himself up, but he knocks down all other competitors. He seems to assume that all of them will fall except him. Even though they all will fall, I won't. Yes, they don't know. Yes, they'll give in. Yes, they're not spiritually strong. You're right, Jesus, but not all, not me. Mark's account seems to run from one apostolic failure to another, from one blunder to another. Peter isn't alone. There was James and John in chapter 10 who really demanded of Jesus the right hand and the left hand of his kingdom. Peter isn't alone, but a lot of times the spotlight has been on Peter who has a bad case of foot-in-mouth disease. Not foot and mouth, but foot in mouth disease. And, and these blunders have not had their proper humbling effect upon Peter. He is so cocksure that when they all fall away, when they all run away, he alone will be standing next to his Lord's side. And so Jesus ups the ante with another prediction. Peter singled himself out among the disciples. And so Jesus goes tit for tat. Truly, I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. That's exactly what we'll see at the end of chapter 14. Lord willing, we'll look at that next Sunday. For this week, simply note that this is much worse than stumbling or fleeing or running or hiding or scattering. Jesus says, you will not only run Peter, but you will deny me, disown me, disavow me, not once, not twice, but three times. Peter then ups the ante with another protest, with more resolve, with more commitment. And the rest of the disciples then join him in it. Verse 31, he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Now, on the one hand, this is kind of good. You can kind of view this as some measure of growth or improvement because when Jesus predicted his death, Peter rebuked him. And it was then that Jesus said, you must take up cross and follow me, deny yourself. You must give up life in order to gain life. You must lose life in order to get eternal life. You can't be ashamed of me. And be my disciple, Jesus said. And before when Jesus said this kind of stuff, the disciples either rejected it or scratched their heads and kept on walking. But now, here for the first time, they, they acknowledge what seems to be coming. They seem to acknowledge Jesus' death, maybe even accept it. And for the first time, they verbalize their undying commitment to him. Or maybe we should say they're dying commitment to him because they're willing to die for him. On the other hand, we know how this night ends. We've already read the story. We know how this goes. We know that they were wrong. They were misguided in their self-confidence. This wasn't a holy resolve like you sometimes see in Scripture. No, they trusted in themselves when they said, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. 
They trusted in themselves more than they trusted in Jesus' words or his knowledge of the future. So take note, brothers and sisters. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Whoever trusts in his own heart is a fool, Proverbs says. So let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. In all these sad predictions and empty resolutions, there's still a glimmer of hope. Right there in Jesus' first prediction that they will fall away, that's in verse 27, it's followed by a promise with great hope. Verse 28, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Oh yeah, the resurrection. This isn't just a death and a betrayal, an arrest and a conspiracy. This isn't just deserters and deniers. The resurrection, just as Jesus promised so many times before in Mark, in chapter 8 and chapter 9 and chapter 10, he will be raised on the third day. And here in chapter 14, the resurrection is not only foretold again, but this time with an even more encouraging note added to it. After I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. The stricken shepherd will not only live, not only rise, but he will go before you. That's what shepherds do. They go before the sheep. At least they did in Bible times. I don't know if they do today, but... In Bible times, shepherds led the sheep. The sheep followed the shepherd. I will go before you doesn't mean I'm going to get there before you do. He actually doesn't. But it means that he will lead them. And that implies that there will be a regathering of these scattered sheep. We know they'll be scattered. And we know the shepherd will meet them in Galilee. And he will regroup them. And he will lead them. And that began to happen even at the end of Mark, in Mark 16, 7, right after the resurrection, the angel there told the women at the empty tomb, go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him just as he told you. Now we know this promise in chapter 14, and we know the hope that's to come, the sadness really that's to come, I should say, between this hopeful promise in chapter 14 and, and what's to come at the end of Mark. There are sad turns, there are breathtaking failures, but take heart that right in this prediction of their failure in Peter's denials, we have a reminder of the resurrection, a new promise that their shepherd is going before them and will lead them out and he will regather the wandering scattered sheep. Secondly, we see sorrow and slumber. Verse 32 to 42, this is the Gethsemane scene. Sorrow and slumber. Jesus just predicted his, the, soon coming, the soon coming failures of the disciples, and then they protested and protested again and resolved to die with him if necessary. What is certain is that Jesus will die. Jesus will die. Again, that's been predicted many times. It's been alluded to many times in Mark thus far. And when Jesus has spoken of his coming death before in Mark, I don't know if you've noticed this, but he seems to speak of it without much anguish or dread. It's stated matter-of-factly. 
You can't always capture emotion in print. Sometimes you can. And it seems like if the author wanted to communicate certain emotion about something that was said, he'd put that in there. And yet when Mark tells us what Jesus says about his coming death, he records it in very matter-of-fact ways. But now as this hour draws near, in the night of his arrest, and the day before his crucifixion, we learn that he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. Verse 33. In verse 34, he said, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. So this isn't just sadness. It's not just being scared. This is eternal, internal emotional turmoil. It's being broken. It's being crushed. It's in anguish. This is torment. What do you do in your darkest days? What would you do if you were on death's door? What did Jesus do? He prayed. He prayed. He had his disciples sit down, and then he took Peter, James, and John with him further into the garden. I think he took them in further in the garden and them alone, not because he needed friends close by or he's afraid of a dark garden, neither because he needed them to be watchmen, even though he says keep watch. I think that's more about prayer. I think that's more about watching for what's happening and, and watching spiritual things than to be on watch for bad people who are going to come and, and who are going to have a threat. And, and so he's not telling them to be on watch like that. I think he brought them further into the garden so that they could hear him pray. Even though he went further, they probably could hear him pray. How else would we have this recorded? They could watch him in anguish. Remember, when he brought them up to the Mount of Transfiguration in chapter 9, he brought these same three, Peter, James, and John, up for that purpose, that they could see Jesus' transformed glory that they could see Elijah in Moses affirming Jesus, that they could hear the Father's voice commending him. It was about revealing more of him, that they might grow in their faith and grow in their resolve and grow in their trust. And I think that's why he brings them further into the garden now. But what follows there in the garden is no acted out demonstration simply for the benefit of Peter, James, and John. It's a side benefit. What Jesus does here and, and how he prays here is, is even more about himself. It's for himself. It's between him and his father. It is deeply personal. It is by compulsion that he goes further and falls to the ground and prays. It is because he was greatly distressed and troubled and sorrowful to the point of death. And he prays one of the most shocking prayers in all the Bible. Verse 35, he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Why such agony? Why this kind of prayer? Some have pointed to the coming death and Jesus' humanity. Some have said that even Jesus wrestled with the fear of dying. 
Others have looked more specifically to the unparalleled physical torment that awaited him in the crucifixion. And indeed, we know that crucifixion is one of the most, if not the most, cruelest forms of torture that's ever been invented. It had to be some part of what was on his mind. You can Google what it means to be crucified, what it's like, why it's so cruel. I won't go into that this morning. Related to that, though, some have also played the same thing from another angle. You see, some have wondered whether Jesus faced death with too much dread, too much anguish, however much pain awaited him still. I mean, when others have gone through their martyrdom with seemingly more bravery and confidence and their face like flint, does Jesus perhaps look like a less than kind of martyr? Socrates died courageously. William Wallace, at least according to the movie, I don't know about in reality, but in the movie, that's quite a brave death. Latimer and Ridley, two guys in the 1500s, now called the Oxford Martyrs, they were burned at the stake for the gospel. And as the flames were waist high, Latimer said to Ridley, Be of good courage, Mr. Ridley. We shall today light a candle in England that shall never be put out. That's brave. Was Jesus a worse martyr than these men? The answer is no. And the key to understanding why is that he refers to this cup. This cup. Remove this cup from me, he asks. The cup here doesn't mean his lot or circumstance or whatever's going to happen the next day. Cup, many times in the Bible, is a metaphor for God's judgment, for his wrath, for his anger. Like in Psalm 75, in the hand of the Lord, there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. There are many places in the Old Testament that speak like that, of God's wrath, his judgment to come. It's like a cup, and the wicked will drink it down. In Mark 10... Jesus referred to his own death as the cup. Remember, James and John asked to sit on his right hand and left hand in the kingdom, and it was then that Jesus asked, are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they foolishly said, yes, we are. Now, they would drink up a cup, they would die a martyr's death. They would die for Jesus. But they wouldn't drink the cup that only he could drink. And that is the cup of God's wrath, God's judgment. Jesus said his death is a ransom for many, a payment for sin. It is a bearing of judgment. And so the Lord's Supper is... A cup, isn't it? It's a cup of remembrance, a remembrance of his blood. We drink the cup of salvation in the Lord's Supper only because Jesus first drank the cup of damnation. Here's what Jonathan Edwards says about all this. The sorrow and distress with which his soul suffered arose from a lively, immediate view of that cup of wrath. God the Father did, as it were, set the cup down before him for him to take it and drink it. 
He had a near view of the furnace of wrath into which he was to be cast. He was brought to the mouth of the furnace that he might look into it and stand and view its raging flames and see the glowings of its heat that he might know where he was going and what he was about to suffer. This was the thing that filled his soul with sorrow and darkness. This terrible sight, as it were, overwhelmed him. And this is why the New Testament doesn't dwell on the graphic specifics of the physicality of Jesus' death. Even though we'd like to. We'd like to hear more about what crucifixion's like. Those sermons where you describe in detail what his death was like, what crucifixion really means. They go well. People like those. The New Testament doesn't give us any of those. It assumes the violent death because every first century person in the Roman world had seen crucifixion. They know what it was like. So it does assume the violent, horrific, torturous death, but it doesn't dwell on it because so much more is going on than crucifixion. There were plenty of good guys who got crucified unjustly. But there was only one who was bearing the wrath of God for sinners. There was only one who upon that cross was, was experiencing something utterly, utterly unique. Completely cosmic. He was bearing damnation and hell all at once. Not just for one sin. Not just for one sinner. But for a multitude of sins and a multitude of sinners which no man can number. And this is why Jesus movies, Jesus TV shows can't touch what the Bible does for us about the cross of Christ. Because it can't, in two dimensions and on a flat screen, show us what was happening between Jesus and his father. That's what Sarah sang for us earlier. The Gettys put it so well. No words describe the Savior's plight to be by God forsaken till wrath and love are satisfied and every sin is paid. What took him to this wretched place? What kept him on this road? His love for Adam's cursed race, for every broken soul. No sin too slight to overlook, no crime too great to carry, all mingled in this poison cup. Yet he drank it all. The Savior drank it all. The gospel, the good news, can be summarized simply as this. It is being saved from God by God. Being saved from God by God in Jesus Christ through the cross, received through faith. We're actually saved not from ourselves, but from God. John the Baptist preached, flee from the wrath to come. You flee to Jesus, away from wrath, away from yourself, away from your sin, away from your former ways of self-justification. Flee to the Savior in him alone. Do it today, don't delay. But still, we haven't answered the question. Why did Jesus pray that this cup would be removed if he knew it was God's will? 
If he knew that he came to die, if he knew what would happen upon that cross and that it was essential to our salvation, why would he pray to get out of it? Well, this has to be one of the most theologically perplexing questions there is. It's certainly one of the most, if not the most, theologically perplexing prayers in all the Bible. We'll never fully understand it. But there are a few things we can conclude about why Jesus prayed this prayer. His prayer that the cup would be removed, that there'd be another way, powerfully demonstrated his humanity. Yes, his perfect humanity, but his true humanity. Hebrews 5 hitches up his humanity with this very prayer. In the days of his flesh... Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. He was heard referring to the resurrection, of course, not being freed from this cup. Note this, Jesus wasn't unemotional about going to the cross. It was a struggle. Therefore, it was a temptation Jesus praying this prayer indicates to us that it was a fork in the road. It was a temptation. It should be shocking for us to realize and to ponder that Jesus actually distinguishes between his wants and the Father's wants. For this moment in time, they're not the same. He distinguishes between his will and the Father's will. Not my will, but yours be done. In this moment in time, there's a distinction between the Father's will and the Son's want. And yet, Jesus says, not my will, but yours be done. The Father's will trumps his own. Unlike Adam and Eve in the garden, that first garden, where their will won out over God's. They said, my will, not yours be done. Nevertheless, Jesus asked the Father for another way that would still be according to his will. He acknowledged before the Father what he wanted to come. He wanted something else. And yet he resolved, not my will, but yours be done. His prayer in the garden then shows us that it was a real temptation. Hebrews 4 tells us that we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect was tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence, the writer of Hebrews says, draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus was tempted, yet without sin. Jesus' prayer also in the garden here is a model for us, even though it doesn't say, here's how you ought to pray. He brought Peter, James, and John along. Perhaps they only heard a few sentences worth. I mean, he was there for an hour or hours. We don't know. He was praying all that time. He was praying a lot. And we only have a few sentences before they fell asleep. But no doubt Jesus intended in part as one of those many instances where he would teach them something about prayer and how to pray, we learn from this prayer here that in our darkest hour, we must pray. 
that when we pray, we call on a God who is our Father, not a cosmic entity far away, but a Father. We pray to one for whom all things are possible. Jesus states that. And we come to him and we ask. And he invites us to ask. He commands us to ask. Jesus asked. We can tell the Father what we want. We can ask, is this possible? Is this according to your will? And yet we pray like Jesus, not my will, but yours be done. And we mean it. We actually mean it that we want his will done more than what we want to happen happens. We don't pray for our will as the trump card and say, and we'll put up with whatever you have if it's different. Or, I know I really don't get a say in this, so not my will, but yours be done, as we all know. No, no, no. We want his will. His will's better than our will. His ways are higher than our ways. He knows more. He's, he's better at God than you are. And Jesus' prayer in the garden also shows us the severity and seriousness of the problem of sin. I mean, if the Son of God was in this kind of anguish about the thought of bearing sin and bearing the punishment of sin, then it should say something about the extent of your sin, the problem of your sin. It should say something to us about the cost that was needed for our salvation. Jesus prayed three times. Each time was separated by checking in on Peter, James, and John. And what a contrast with Jesus' deep sorrow and their deep slumber. They boasted of their willingness to die for him. And here, as he's nearing death and a death for them, they can't pray, they can't stay awake. Because their eyes were heavy. It was just the night before that Jesus told them this. Be on guard. Keep awake. Stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come. In the evening or at midnight. Or when the rooster crows. Or in the morning. Lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to, to you. I say to all. Stay awake. That was the night before. And they slept. It wasn't. Too many years back, maybe two years, when they'd been in a boat with Jesus in a storm. They were scared to death. Jesus was asleep. They said to him, Master, don't you care that we're perishing? Of course he cares. You're not perishing. You're with the sovereign, the creator. Everything's fine. He's in control of storms and sea. But now as Jesus is in the greatest cosmic storm that has ever, ever been, they're asleep. He found them like this three times. He prayed three times. He asked the Father for another way. And how did the Father answer his prayer? Silence. No answer. No affirming voice from heaven like there was at his baptism. No affirming voice from heaven like there was on that Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus prays. He asks the Father. There's silence. 
The disciples are asleep. The Father is silent. Jesus is alone. He alone must be this world's sacrifice and this world's salvation. Now we come to the third section. And again, the third and fourth we can look at more quickly. The third is submission and swords. Jesus' submission to the will and plan of his Father is contrasted with the swords that are coming to take him away. He was tempted to refuse the cup. Yes, he asked the Father for another way. He asked three times, and there was silence. There is no other way. And so now he submits himself to the Father's will. He says to his drowsy disciples, in verse 41, it is enough, the hour has come The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And before he can finish those words, immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. What an unnecessary show of strength and bravado. You've got chief priests, scribes, and elders, three parties who don't get along united on this, each no doubt with their own crowd, their own goons. A crowd with swords, with clubs. What Jesus says to them later on is so telling. Have you come out, verse 48, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. I've been under your nose. I've been teaching in public. I've hidden nothing. I turned over tables. I'm looking for a fight. Are you kidding? We're not looking for that kind of fight, though. You you thought you'd show up with clubs and swords, and we'd be here with other clubs and swords, and, and this would be West Side Story, Gethsemane version? No. His kingdom is not of this world, his disciples won't fight. At least they shouldn't. There's another sword in the midst of it all. Verse 47, one who stood by Jesus drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. We know from John's account that this is Peter. Some have said Peter is either really good with a sword, he can get a guy's ear, or he's pretty bad with a sword. He's aiming for a whole head and he's missing. The other accounts give us more than what Mark tells us, but Mark tells us enough. We know what this represents, Peter drawing his sword and swinging it. It's the mindset of the old wineskins. Peter's trusting in the sword. He's thinking this thing will advance like it did in olden days with the sword. But even in the olden days, you had contrasts like Saul and David. And Saul, always with his spear in hand, he was always trusting his spear. And David saying, the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's. That's what we're seeing here. Judas has the same mindset as Peter and Saul and like so many others in the Bible. Of course, Judas is far worse off than Peter because he's on the wrong side of the sword, but it's the same kind of thinking. We're told, verse 44, the betrayer had given them a sign. The one I will kiss is the man. 
Seize him and lead him away under guard. Look at that paranoia. I'm going to kiss him. And then as soon as I do, you step in. All of you step in. And as soon as you grab him, you get him out of here right away. And you make sure you keep him. You see the fear. You see the guilt. You see the shame. You see how unnecessarily sneaky he is about it all. Not walking up and pointing. Walking up at once and saying, Rabbi, teacher, just like usual. And he kissed him. Kissed him affectionately, as men would do in that culture. And it was then that they laid hands on him and seized him. They come with swords, they come to seize, but Jesus is about submission to his father and the scriptures being fulfilled. He says, but let the scriptures be fulfilled, verse 49. He hits play, all right, let's go. Let's take this thing off pause, let's move it along. And that leads to our last thing. Number four, there's fulfillment and fleeing but let the scriptures be fulfilled. What scriptures? Well, probably a whole lot of Old Testament passages that would refer to Messiah's betrayal, Messiah's suffering, Messiah's rejection, etc. Or even the scripture of the shepherd being stricken and the sheep being scattered. Let the scriptures be fulfilled. It's all according to plan. And just as he said from Zechariah 13, they would all flee. Verse 50, they all left him and fled. They all fled. At the first sign of the, the shepherd about to be stricken, they fled, not even when he was stricken. Their bravado, their self-confidence early on proved worthless. They were proving here in this moment anyway that they were like that third soil of the four soils Jesus talked about in Mark 4. He said, for some, they receive the word with joy, but then when tribulation and persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. That wasn't the sum total of the disciples' life and eternal destiny. Praise God. But in this moment, they're of that Mark 3 soil. They're acting in that Mark, sort of that third soil trajectory. Mark tells us about one disciple in particular. An odd story, really. Verse 51 and 52. A young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. They seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. What an odd part of the story. Maybe you didn't know this was actually in the... There's a streaker in the Bible? Here he is. We talked about David dancing naked last week. Here's a man naked again. Now, on the face of it, verses 51 and 52 are here and uniquely in Mark just to show the desperation of the situation, the chaos of the moment, the extent of the threat, the, the commotion of what's going on, and also to show to us that, that the rest of the disciples apparently would have been captured too had they not fled. The scribes, goons, got their hands on just one of them, and just by the scruff of his shirt, but he slipped out of his garment like Houdini and ran naked through the quad and got away. But there's another level to understanding this part of the story. 
Throughout the Bible, nakedness and shame often go hand in hand. Sometimes nakedness is a metaphor for shame. Sometimes they go to hand in hand, hand literally, like someone's physically naked and they're actually ashamed. The first account uh, you're probably thinking of is the one I'm thinking of as well. They're in Genesis 2. In Genesis 3, rather, when Adam and Eve sinned against God, they fled the garden. They were naked and ashamed. Literally naked, but they also felt naked, exposed, vulnerable, embarrassed. This young man, in another garden, millennia later, went through a testing of sorts as well, and he failed, and he fled, and he hid. He was exposed, and it was shameful. Now, Jesus will, in just a day, he will bear shame, but not his own. He will bear our shame. He will soon be stripped of his clothes, but not because he fled and narrowly escaped, but because he was submitting himself to bearing shame at the hands of sinners for sinners in their salvation. All this was according to the scriptures. Where do you see yourself in our passage this morning? There are all kinds of different people here. You've got the proud, overly confident disciples who are also sleepy followers, prayerless followers. You've got the outright enemies who are bent on Jesus' destruction. You have a two-faced betrayer. You've got at least one guy who's trusting in the wrong thing, a sword, in the name of Jesus. And on his behalf. And then you've got these followers who flee when trouble and threat come. I at times see myself in some of these people. My only hope is a strong and stricken shepherd. My only confidence lies in the fact that Jesus went to the cross. He died for sinners, was raised on the third day, lives forevermore. He gathered sheep to himself. He's regathering and regathering and gathering even today. Let us find our courage, our strength, our confidence in him. Fathers, I haven't forgotten it's Father's Day. I know this isn't much about fathers, but here it is. Here's my Father's Day bit. We want masculinity in our homes, in our lives, and in our sons. Let's remember that strength isn't swords. It isn't in cocky speech. It isn't in bravado. It isn't in self-confidence and self-reliance. Look to Jesus, who doesn't look very strong at all when he's face down in the garden in a mush of emotion and grief and weeping for hours. But there was silence, and so he went. He went. He went willingly, and he went in the strength of the Lord. Because of his grace that forgives our weakness, let us then find our strength in him. Let us be strong in the grace that he supplies. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for a strong Savior, but not as the world sees strength, a stricken shepherd, and yet one who will rise and will lead. We thank you for your sovereign, glorious, successful plan 
that is not done but is as good as done. Give us confidence. Give us surety. Help us to believe the Savior for what he says, to own him for who he is, to receive him as our own, and to cling to him with our hearts and minds and our lives forever and ever, knowing that he clings to us and he holds tight to us. Help us now as we sing really to each other to be strong, as we give each other, and especially fathers and men in this room, a charge to be strong. Help us to do it in faith and joy and confidence in you and in you alone. Because of Jesus and for his name we pray, amen.